Well, shall we begin? Let's pray. We do not come to your word, Lord, without the plea that the Spirit who inspired it for our understanding may open our understanding to understand it, indeed, in a deeper way, because he is the Spirit of truth and illumination. He is the Spirit who has brought into our life life of the world to come because he is the spirit of your dear son O Lord God our father he is your spirit he is the spirit of the triune Godhead so we bless him for his work and for the marvelous display of his power we ask you father as we think about some of that work this evening to enable us to rejoice both in him and what he has revealed of the kingdom of heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm back to the first page of the handout for Hebrews, handout number seven under verse 1, where we have noticed the relationship between the exordium in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and the first four verses of chapter 2. There is a parallel, and I want to point out that parallel by way of contrast For you will remember that in those first two verses of the first chapter, there was a contrast between the former and latter revelation. What God had spoken in time past and had spoken in these last days. That contrast is also present here in chapter 2. That which has been spoken in time past spoken to, through angels. We want to deal a little bit with what that means, but notice that we have the very same reflection upon the prior revelation of the former era. So, contrast between the old and the new, or the first and the last, if we can <coughs> exploit the word eschatos in Verse 2, these last days of chapter 1. This contrast has to do in part with one of the difficulties that this audience, the readers of this epistle, appear to be having. Namely, the contrast between the externalism of the former era and the invisibilism of the present era. By which I mean, having seen the manifestation of, shall we say, the in-betweeners, those that were between them and God the Revealer in the former era, namely the Old Testament prophets, 
listed in the first chapter, or named in the first chapter, very visible. The angels, at least the manifestation of the angels was visible. If not the manifestation of the angelophany from time to time, the appearance of angels. And, of course, Moses as one of the great uh, mediators of Revelation in the Old Testament, a very visible figure. The externalism, that is, the tangibility of uh, these between the people of God and God himself figures. That is not true under the New Testament era. There is nothing between God and his people save the Lord Jesus. You might say that, therefore, there is, in fact, an in-between. There is a visible person, yes, in his incarnation he was manifest, but he is no longer manifest, visible to the eye. We believe on him by faith, and consequently, this uh, mediator or intermediary character of the Old Testament has been uh, passed away, and that loss of the external, that loss of the outward, that loss of the visible seems to be troubling this congregation, this community. They don't know what to do with, shall we say, the intangibility of the New Testament era. They want something to get their hands on. They want flesh and blood. They want to get their meat hooks into it. They could see Moses. They could touch Moses. They could grapple with the prophets. They cannot do that under this era in which Christ sits at the right hand. And so they're disturbed by it. And when pressure comes in the form of persecution or putting them in jail, they begin to wobble a little bit because they don't have anything to hold on to tangibly. And consequently, this is the first concrete element or mention of this subsidiary problem. What I mean subsidiary, this is underneath the surface of this community. There's something bugging them, so to speak, and what's bugging them is the absence of what they remember from the Old Testament era. Namely, it's externalism. We're going to see this again as we march through this epistle, particularly going to see it in chapters 3 and 4. All right. Now, that might seem to be a disadvantage of the newer era, the eschatological era. That is, that there is no tangibility to it, no visibility as there were with the visible prophets and Moses and the manifestation of the angels in the former era. It might seem to be a disadvantage. In other words, that this administration, this era, is of less value, less importance. But in fact, the author is turning that argument around. He's saying that because there is no intervening external or visible mediator, that is, somebody between you and God, who stands between you and God in that visible way, that this era of the New Testament is better. It is a better age. Well, you might say to me, but Jesus is the mediator. Yes, he is. But you see, when we're talking about Jesus, as we've learned in the beginning of this first chapter, 
When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God himself, the second person of the Godhead. And so consequently, in this new era, there is no visible mediation that is a kind of barrier or a hurdle that you have to go over or go through in order to receive the benefit of God's revelation. That revelation comes directly to you because of the risen Christ. In this section, then, he is building upon the better age of better revelation in chapter 1, by saying that because there are no visible mediaries between, nothing in between, nothing in between you and God, you see, you've come to the better age. You've come to the more perfect display and revelation. Well, this motif of nothing between is found in a hymn that is in the Trinity Hymnal. I want you to listen to what Horatius Bonar writes in number 495 in that Trinity Hymnal. Listen to how he expresses it. Nothing in between. No, not despairingly come I to thee, No, not distrustingly, bend I the knee. Sin hath gone over me, yet is this still my plea. Jesus hath died. Ah, mine iniquity crimson has been infinite, infinite sin upon sin. Sin of not loving thee, sin of not trusting thee, infinite sin. Faithful and just art thou, forgiving, all-loving and kind art thou when poor ones call. Lord, let the cleansing blood, blood of the Lamb of God, pass or my soul. Then all is peace and light. This soul within, thus shall I walk with thee, the loved unseen. Leaning on thee, my God, guided along the road, nothing between. Now, Bonner is referring, of course, to the beatific vision of heaven, where there'll be nothing between us and the glory of Christ's ascended face as he receives us into his presence. But notice how he talks in that fifth verse about the loved unseen, the loved one, the loved God our Lord. Unseen, the invisible beloved of our hearts. He's got his fingers on this advantage, you see, that we have in this era of nothing between us and God, save his son who is God, 
which once again underscores the fact that there are no visible mediaries in this era where we have direct and immediate access to the Father, to the Son, by the Spirit. So the contrast between 1, 1, and 4 and 2, 1, and 4 is the same root contrast, but now with a little expansion here in the second chapter about the fact that we don't have prophets and we don't have angels as mediators and we don't even have Moses, the greatest of the Old Testament Hebrew revelatory figures. All right, in verse 2, he moves to a technique expressed in a couple of ways in Latin, a minore ad maius. you have any Latin scholars out there that would like to uh, translate that phrase? Any non-Latin scholars who would like to take a shot at it? From minor to major? Yes, from the lesser to the greater, from the minor to the major. Now, what is he arguing here from the lesser to the greater? Well, from the lesser, if the words spoken by angels, dot, 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 then the greater, how shall we escape? Okay, so the greater is the era of the New Testament. The word spoken to the angels is the era of the Old Testament. So arguing from the lesser to the greater, if the lesser received its own just recompense, then how much more? The greater. Once again, the contrastive relationship between the revelation of the former era under the prophets and uh, Moses, etc., now the uh, revelation of these last days through the Son. Now that expression, from the lesser to the greater, is also coined by the Jewish rabbis. It's called Kal Wahomer. Kal Wahomer. It literally means from the easy to the difficult. But it is a synonym for this from the lesser to the greater. Now, grammatically, it is a if and then fill in the blank sequence. You see the if in verse 2. So, if, verse 2, fill in the blank, which comes in verse 3. What's the word that we want to put in the blank? If that word did not escape a just recompense, then this word that has been spoken in verse 3, namely the word of our salvation. It's an if-then relationship. Okay? Now, he mentions the word spoken through angels. This is not the only place where the word of God or the law of God is described in the New Testament as being appointed, ordained, spoken through angels. The two noteworthy passages in the New Testament are Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Let's turn to that, and I'll ask somebody to read it when you get to it. Acts chapter 7, 
verse 53. Terry, are you there there? No. Okay. Art, you have it? Yes. Please. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Okay. Uh, there's a longer expansion of that single Greek word, which is translated in other versions, ordained. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Galatians 3, 19. Loretta, do you have it yet? I do. Thank you. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. All right, there again, we have this relationship of the law ordained through the agency of angels. What is being suggested here? Well, it is not just the fact that angels accompanied the giving of the law. That is certainly true. Moses describes that in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, when he's reviewing what had happened on Mount Sinai. God came, the Holy One, from Mount Paran with tens of thousands, myriads upon myriads of his Holy Ones. It's a reference to the angelic host. So, Consequently, the angels were present uh, at Mount Sinai, when the law was given. But the word ordained that is used here suggests a kind of appointment of the law by the uh, angelic uh, beings. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, Does it mean that they somehow were uh, agents of revelation? I don't think so, though that's the nuance that some of your translations give. I think what is going on here, particularly in Hebrews 2, Uh, verse 2, is that the presence of the angels at the giving of the law was an endorsement of the truthfulness of what was revealed, the truthfulness of the law. Now, the word endorsement would fit very well the context here in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. For you'll notice that in verse 3, Uh, The word confirmed is the same as the word for unalterable or in some of your versions steadfast in verse 2. So what was confirmed by the angels in verse 2, if we can use the verse 3 translation for that very same Greek word, what has confirmed or endorsed by the angels was also confirmed or endorsed by the Holy Spirit, verse 4, through the miraculous signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The point is, in this section, the author is talking about how the angelic presence is an endorsement or confirmation of the authority of the revelation, its heavenly character. 
That is the same point that's being made here by the writer in Hebrews 2. Namely, the Holy Spirit gives confirmation and endorsement to the revelation through the miraculous gifts and attestations. Consequently, the word that has been translated ordained in Acts 7 and in Galatians 3 has a nuanced suggestion of angelic endorsement, angelic accompaniment by confirming the revelation that has been delivered. They are there to testify by their own presence of its truthfulness. All right. Now that brings us to the rhetorical question then in verse 3. How shall we escape? And the answer, Marge? How shall we escape? That's the rhetorical question. And the answer to the rhetorical question is? Or he? We shall not escape. It has a... A negative answer. And then we have a capsule summary of the message of the New Testament. Notice the, the compacted character of the New Testament kerygma, the New Testament proclamation that is contained here, begins with what the Lord spoke. In other words, the gospel as the Lord Jesus proclaimed it. Then those that heard him, they heard what he spoke. They heard his proclamation. And we heard what they heard from what he spoke. And then God attested or confirmed or endorsed what he spoke, what the disciples heard, and what we heard from them by miraculous signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit. You see the pattern here. The pattern is that the revelation, this surpassing, better, newer eschatological revelation, is spoken by the Lord himself. It is heard by those who heard it, the disciples. We heard them And all of it has been confirmed unto us as truthful revelation of the Lord from the Lord by the attestation, by the manifestation of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, this sequence here is in direct parallel with what we find in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 25 and Andy, if you would read that verse for us when you get it, <clears throat> Hebrews twelve twenty five. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Notice that word speaking. For those did not escape. Notice that word escape. Once again, exactly the same two words in this section in chapter 2. Go ahead, Andy. For those did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape and turn away from him who warns from heaven. You see the contrast again. The contrast between the earth and the heaven. The contrast between the warning that was delivered from the earth and the warning that now comes from heaven. The temporal and the eschatological. The earthly and the heavenly. 
That's exactly what is behind this contrast here in chapter 2. All right, that brings us then to verse 4 in the miraculous gifts or the miraculous signs. They serve as fill-in-the-blank attestation. Attestation. They testify to the verity, the truthfulness, the objectivity of these heavenly signs and gifts. So, putting together... Chapter 1, the eschatological revelation. He has spoken in these last days. We have an eschatological attestation, the miraculous gifts of these last days. Notice once again, from the lesser to the greater, there was miraculous attestation with revelation that accompanied the angels. There were miracles at Sinai. There were miracles in the wilderness. There is miraculous attestation from the revelation accompanied by the Son. And yet, the revelation that has been attested in these last days is a triune manifestation. Notice in verses 3 and 4 that we have God, we have the Lord, and we have the Holy Spirit. We have a triune attestation. We have the Trinity involved in the attestation. That is a greater attestation in these last days than that which was attested by the angelic presence in the former days. So once again, he's following this pattern of this hermeneutical principle of arguing from the lesser to the greater, from the older to the newer, from the poorer to the surpassingly excellent revelation. All right, what is a miracle? So we come to the issue of the fourth verse and the miraculous signs, and we begin at the fundamental level by defining a miracle. A miracle is not, and let's define it in the via negativa, A miracle is not the birth of a baby. It is not. That happens hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. It is not a miraculous event. A miracle is not the rescue of the Chilean miners. It is not. It was not a miraculous transmigration or transmogrification of them from deep underground to standing beside the president of Chile in an instant. It was not. Nor is a miracle the ninth inning home run of Billy Mazeroski in the 1960 World Series when the Pittsburgh Pirates defeated the terrible New York Yankees and everybody in western Pennsylvania, my native stomping grounds, cheered. Fifty years ago this month, the only World Series that is still remembered every year by a community. (laughs) Fifty years later, they gather at what remains of old Forbes Field and they listen to a tape recording replay of the entire ball game. And they cheer all 3,000 of them once again when Billy Maz rounds third base. 
Now, just to pique your interest a little more, Bing Crosby, who happened to own part of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1960, had that uh, ball game taped by video off of a TV screen in two canisters found in his wine cellar last summer they found the only living copy known of the whole world series game 7 1960 it will be replayed this fall on the major league baseball network those of you that have cable you better believe this western pennsylvania boy will be ready to see it because we all know where we were on that day on 3.36 p.m., October 13, 1960. I was walking home from high school, and everybody poured out into the streets. I didn't know what happened. I just know they won, but I didn't know how they won. Well, at any rate, <laughs> that was not a miracle. Though some of us regard it as the greatest World Series victory in the history of the series. All right, what is a miracle? It is a supernatural act or a supernatural event. It is not a natural act. It is not a natural event. It is not the birth of a baby, which is a natural act. It is not the rescue of the Chilean miners. That is a natural act. It was all done by natural processes. No, a miracle is a supernatural act. It has no natural processes, no natural cause and effect. Well then, how is it caused? Well, since it's a supernatural act, it is caused... By the direct action of God. It is an immediate supernatural action of the power of Almighty God. Unleashed in time and space history. And it is an act of God's almighty power. Unleashed in time and space history. Which means it's a visible act. It's something that can be seen. It is an act which occurs apart from and without the forces of nature. There are no secondary causes. There is nobody turning a key. There is nobody taking an instrument and applying it to something to make something work. This is no human causality, no physical causality, no material causality, no causality in the natural world. This is immediate supernatural causality. Turn water into wine. There are no secondary causes when that happens. That's supernatural creation. You raise a man four days stinking dead. There is no not natural causality. That is immediate, almighty explosion of supernatural power. A man walks across a raging sea of Galilee. There is no skyhook holding him on. That is immediate supernatural power. All right, you get the distinction. The word miracle is overused in this culture. I don't know how many times it was used during the Chilean minor minor rescue. I rejoice in the rescue of the miners, but it is not a miracle. 
It was the application of modern technology, particularly NASA technology. Those Chilean miners should thank America for its capitalism. It was the application of American technology and ingenuity to placing them in what amounted to a little space capsule and bringing them up out of the ground. Thank God for that. That's part of what capitalism is all about, making life safer and better for poor miners buried underground. Now, I'm sorry if I trampled all over your socialistic parade with that, but nonetheless, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened if some bureaucracy had been trying to do it. They would have had committees that would have had to meet for two years before they decided whether it was even right to dig into the ground. And then it had to have an environmental study to make sure. Well, all right. <laughs> Let's go back to miracle. I gave you an article, actually it's a revision of an article that I wrote uh, over 30 years ago, Understanding the Miracles of Jesus. And I want to go over that article with you in conjunction with this passage in which we are told that God bore witness to the revelation of the gospel given through his son, given through the disciples, given through those who heard the disciples by miraculous gifts and signs of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to be rather uh, laborious about this because I want to give you a chance to raise any questions if you do, if you have them, and I also want to make sure that you understand what I have written. That's part of the reason I've given it to you. So, let's begin. Understanding the Miracles of Jesus. During the last 200 years, synoptic, and when we say synoptic, we mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are the synoptic evangelists or the synoptic writers. Synoptic and Johannine, that's the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Miracles in those four Gospels have been apologetic tools in the hands of orthodox controversialists. Right, now apologetic tool is a tool in which the Christian faith is defended. Defended against those who reject it. In the case of miracles, there are not many modern New Testament scholars who believe in miracles. Most all of them believe that the miracles in the Bible are symbolic myths. They are not true. They did not happen. So, because they don't believe in supernatural events, they don't believe in the miracles of the Bible. Those people are not orthodox, that is, they do not believe the right doctrine. Orthodoxy means the correct biblical doctrine. The Bible talks about miracles, not only in the New Testament period, but in the Old Testament period. The Bible talks about a God who is capable of performing miracles, because he's a supernatural God. And a supernatural God can perform supernatural acts in time and space history. So the objectivity of the miracles is defended by orthodox controversialists. They apologize. They give a defense for the trustworthiness, historicity, reliability of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament. Now, they're controversialists because they're arguing against the debunkers and the deniers of the miraculous in the Bible. Okay, any questions about the first sentence? You're all following what's at, what's at issue here. All right, these defenders of the faith. All right, they're apologists. 
Now, that's not all they do, but they're apologizing by defending the truth of Christianity. They have proceeded as follows. First of all, they have observed that since God alone could empower a person with miraculous gifts, miracles identify the agent as a messenger of God. Now, the classic text that expresses this is John 3, 2. Let's turn to John 3, 2 for a minute, and let's read what Nicodemus says there. John chapter 3, verse 2. Mike, do you have it yet? Please. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, do these signs that you do, unless God is with you. John's word for Jesus' miracle is signs, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want you to notice what Nicodemus says there. We know that you're a teacher come from God. How do we know that you're a teacher come from God? We don't know that you're a teacher come from the devil. Because nobody could do these things that you do unless God were with him. God would not give the power that you have to a devil, which is what Jesus says when he calls the Pharisees ridiculous for thinking he's casting out Satan by the power of Satan. That's absurd. A house divided against itself won't stand. I'm not from Satan. I'm not from hell. I'm doing the works of God. I'm doing the works of virtue. I'm doing good things with this miraculous power. I'm not building up the kingdom of Satan. Therefore, angels don't have the power to perform miracles. All right? Only God can give a person miraculous gifts. Now, that quotation from John 3, 2 is also endorsed in part from the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, 24. When after Elijah raises her son from the dead, she confesses to him, Now I know that you are a man of God. How did she know he was a man of God? Because he had miraculous power to raise her son. That's how she knew it. And she's a Gentile. And she confesses it. The Exodus 8 is a reference to the magicians in Egypt who say that this is the finger of God. When Moses brings the third plague Upon Egypt. All right, so these Orthodox defenders of the faith have said that a miracle identifies a person as a messenger of God. We know you've come from God. Nobody could do these miracles that you're doing unless God were with him. Second, now when the messenger says, Thus saith the Lord, how many times does the messenger in the Bible say, Thus saith the Lord? Four thousand times. Four thousand times, thus saith the Lord. Count them up in your concordance. Okay, I didn't do it. Somebody did it. But four thousand times the message is, thus saith the Lord. Well, then the miracle authenticates the claim to be a vehicle of thus saith the Lord. Therefore, what you're saying, the Lord has endorsed. He has attested by the miraculous sign. You are a channel of supernatural revelation. Nicodemus says you're a channel of supernatural revelation, Jesus, Rabbi. I know you are because nobody could do these miracles unless God was channeling his supernatural revelation through you. You get the point here. 
This is a very obvious point to Nicodemus and to the widow of Zarephath for that minute and that matter, and to the magicians in Egypt. Conclusion. Therefore, the miracles are an endorsement of the inerrancy of Scripture. The miracles are an attestation that what is here is thus saith the Lord, and God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1. Inerrancy means there are no errors there because God himself cannot reveal an erroneous truth or an erroneous matter. Quinn shouldn't say erroneous truth, that's a contradiction. All right, are you with me? All right, this is a standard way in which the so-called argument from miracles has been used in apologetics, in defending the faith. Now, what I'm going to say in the rest of this article, the ensuing argument, is not to be construed as a rejection of the validity of this apologetic approach or its conclusion. It is there in John 3, 2. You cannot avoid it. It's in the text. I'm sorry. It's there. It's in the book. And so... I think the way the book speaks. Now, supernatural revelation is accompanied by supernatural attestation. That's what we have seen in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. The revelation that is coming from the supernatural arena from God himself is endorsed, confirmed, attested by supernatural miraculous signs. The following argument suggests, however, that the strictly apologetic aspect does not exhaust the significance of the gospel miracles. Complementary aspects are equally significant. And yet, it must be admitted that the tendency of the exclusively apologetic emphasis is to isolate the gospel miracles from their context in the history of redemption. If all we see is the apologetic aspect of the miracles defending the trustworthiness of the Bible and the reliability of the messengers of Revelation, if that is all we see, if it's only apologetics that the miracle functions in, then we have not seen the whole story that Revelation is displaying in the miraculous gifts. That is, the gospel miracles are intimately related to what has preceded them, the retrospective aspect in the history of redemption, and what will follow them, the prospective aspect in the history of salvation or the Historia Salutis. To say this, is to suggest that the gospel miracles are best understood in a biblical, theological, or redemptive historical framework. They exist in a vital relationship with the past, the present, and the future activity of God on behalf of his people. So, we're not going to isolate just the apologetic aspect of the miracle, though that is valid. We're going to say there is a dramatic, uh, there's dramatic richness in the miracles. There's something more here than just the defense of the faith. All right, how do we get at that? Well, the Apostle John gives us a clue to this biblical theological framework in his Greek vocabulary. 
John's most common name for the miracles of Jesus is the Greek word semeon, rendered signs by the New American Standard Version. You saw that when we had John 3, 2 read. Nobody can do these signs that you do, meaning miracles. The miracles of Jesus are signs. Now notice the related English word. Our English word semaphore comes from that Greek word semeon. You know what a semaphore is. Well, maybe you don't know anymore since they don't use them much anymore. But uh, those of you who once upon a time knew about semaphores, maybe even Boy Scout camp or Girl Scout camp, in my day in Boy Scouts, we had to learn how to use them. We have, you know, have to wave them. I never did learn it very well, but at any rate, it was part of the part of the merit badge. <laughs> okay. Semaphore was a way that particularly ships would send messages by the way they held the flags and, and sent the signal by way of semaphore, transmitting a message. All right, that's behind the Greek word for signs in the Gospel of John. Now, the word dunamis is the predominant synoptic term, emphasizing the explosive power present in Christ. Notice our related English word, dynamite. The synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, prefer a different Greek word for Jesus' miracles. They prefer the word dunamis, an eruption of power, an explosion of the power of the kingdom of heaven. It erupts in the world in a supernaturally visible manner. Well, of what then? Are Christ's miracles signs? Let's take the, the Johannine word. They are signs of what are they signs? All right, now I'm going to give a series of illustrations in the next few lines, which will help you understand how they signify or what they signify. For instance, our modern day advertising industry uses signs in order to attract the consumer's attention to the featured product. The billboard sign identifies a product so that we may be attracted to it. In other words, the sign gets our attention. It's an attention grabber. That's one way we use signs. Second, we know that the object advertised on the billboard represents or symbolizes a product which is available now, you see that Toyota Camry on that billboard, and you know over there at Magic Toyota on 99, there is a Toyota Camry on the lot. So it is available now. What is signed is available now, present tense. Finally, our highway departments use signs to point the way ahead. 12 miles to Northgate, okay? 45 miles to Bellingham, okay, down the road. See, signs point the way to what's in the future. So, let's summarize the illustration. Signs function in three significant aspects for us. Attraction and identification. They attract our attention and they identify something uh, of, of, of interest. Presence and availability. What is signed or signified is present and available now. Futurity and anticipation. <clears throat> what lies ahead, what we anticipate down the road 
in the future. All right. Now, let's take that and use it with respect to the biblical theological framework. The modern illustrations help unfold the biblical theological framework we are attempting to demonstrate. That is the richer than the mere apologetic approach to the miracles. The miracles of Jesus are signs. Signs attracting attention to Jesus as the Lord. Christ's signs identify him as the master. In Latin, the dominus. You see, that's the word for Lord in Latin, dominus. They identify him as the master of the universe. He is the Lord of the universe. Dominus. Understanding Christ's claim to be very God, John significantly uses the theophonic name, that is, the, name, the I am name of God from Exodus 3, 14. I am that I am. Notice how Jesus uses it. I am the bread of life. That's the God name. He's taking that name upon himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of life. I am the resurrection of the light. That name is a name by which Jesus claims to be God, the Lord, the master of the creation. Jesus is the Lord of creation. He is God, the Lord. John 20, 28, Thomas, my Lord and my God. His miracles are credentials attesting that claim. And so... The signs, the miracles, as attention-getting devices constitute the apologetic aspect of the gospel miracles. They identify Jesus as God the Lord. Well, do they identify Paul as God the Lord? Do they identify Moses as God the Lord? If so, why not? What's the difference? They both have miraculous powers. They both are endorsed as a messenger of God. They did not claim to be God the Lord. In fact, Paul repudiates that claim. So, there's only one person in the history of the world that claimed to be God the Lord who wasn't a maniac or, man, or should have been in a mental institution, and that was Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, that's C.S. Lewis's point. If you're going to patronize him for the fact that he isn't who he claims he is, then he should have been in a mental institution. All right. So, Christ is the only miracle worker in the Old and New Testament. Who claims to be God. Who claims lordship over your life. He is the only one. Now, he either is who he says he is. He either is who he claims to be because the miracles endorse that claim. Or he's a liar. You can dismiss him as a liar. But you have to come to grips with the fact that here was a man that appeared in history, had the power of miraculous gifts of God, and with that power said, I and the Father are one. I make myself equal with God, John 5, 18. He either is or he isn't. That's the apologetic aspect of the miracle.
But second, the miracles of Jesus are signs signifying the availability or presence of the thing desired. Notice the sign on the billboard says that something is present and available right now. Well, what is it with respect to the miracles? What are the miracles of Jesus saying is present and available now? The dawn of the age that the Old Testament prophets predicted, the new order, the dawn of a new day, which would come when the Messiah himself came. The miracles of Christ are signs that that new day has arrived, that that new age is available in him. In fact, he identifies it as the presence of the kingdom of God. If I, by the finger of God, cast out Satan, you know that the kingdom of God has come into your midst. What was the kingdom of God? It is what the prophets were predicting would come. You see, Jesus is saying what the prophets predicted was going to come, I'm bringing. It is here now. It is available and present now time. Just like that Toyota Camry is a present right down there on the lot at Magic Toyota. All right. Jesus is not only the Lord of creation, he is the Lord of the new creation. For that is what is happening when he displays his miraculous power. He is displaying the character of the new creation. And all the gifts associated with the Messianic era are available now, present tense, now in him. The signs represent the presence of the new era This is the messianic aspect of the miracles. And finally, the miracles of Jesus are signs of what lies ahead. Just like road signs pointing to the future, Jesus' miracles point to the future of the people of God. The provisional, that is, the temporary nature of the messianic gifts will be consummated in the kingdom of heaven. The miracles are signs that Jesus is the Lord of glory. This is the eschatological aspect of the miracles. So, we proceed to examine the miracles in this threefold biblical theological framework. They're apologetic aspect. They show that Jesus is the Lord of the creation. They're messianic aspect. They show that Jesus is the Lord of the new creation and their eschatological aspect, they show that Jesus is the Lord of glory. And we're going to place or apply those three categories to the four types of miracles in the Gospels. Nature miracles, healing miracles, exorcism miracles, and resurrection miracles. All right, are you with me so far? You see what we're doing? We're expanding the use of miracle beyond the apologetic. We're not denying the apologetic. There is an apologetic defense of the lordship, the deity of Christ in his miraculous power. But there is more there. There is more there. There is this advent of the new creation that has come in Christ Jesus and he signs it miraculously. With the, with the miracles that he performs. And of course, they display in their provisional character the nature of the kingdom of heaven in its eternal dimension. For what's going on when he raises dead Lazarus? 
he is showing you that there is no death in the kingdom of heaven and that there will come a day when the dead will be raised into that arena. His miracle is a testimony to you of what lies ahead in the future for you as a child of God, even as it was for Lazarus. Oh yes, Lazarus did die again, but that's beside the point right now. Okay, any questions or comments about where we are so far? All right, let's begin then with the nature miracles. How do they fit into this paradigm that I'm outlining? Jesus is Lord of creation. He's Lord of the new creation. He is Lord of glory. Jesus stills a storm, walks on the sea, changes water into wine, multiplies loaves and fishes. These are all nature miracles. They are signs that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Attention is directed to the fact that he is God with almighty power over the created elements. Wind and wave obey their master, their dominus. Meat and drink are altered by his will. So the nature miracles are a testimony to you that Jesus is the creator. He creates wine out of water. He creates uh, peace out of a stormy sea. He is the master, the dominus of the created arena. And so he is testified as Lord of creation. But there is more. The nature miracles are signs of the dawning of the new creation, a provisional sign of the dawning of the new creation, and yet nonetheless a sign of that wonderful era. In this man, dominion over the fallen creation is restored. Ah, the exercise of lordship over the creation through another Adam, through another man. The miracles are a indication that that order has been restored. Raging disorder and wild chaos Lack of abundance and failure of supply yield to harmonious peace and plenty. Jesus stills the wave. Peace, be still. He is the Lord of the creation. 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine they'd ever... Super abundance, profuse abundance of the best wine at the feast. There is plenty... There is not want and lack and starvation. There is abundance. 5,000 are fed and there are basketfuls left over. There is an abundance with this Lord of the created order. So Jesus gives a sign that in him, the old creation under the curse is provisionally delivered from the curse. The nature miracles are a display that Christ is the bringer of a messianic era. He is the Lord of a new creation, a creation which yields to his lordship. 
So what the prophets yearned for is available now in an inaugural manner. Christ signifies that the creation is no longer subject to the curse. The prophetic vision of a creation restored to its paradisaical state is fulfilled. The abundance of wine at Cana, the bread for 5,000 with baskets left over, prophetic hope of a paradise regained with fruitfulness and peace and abundance overflowing. Those are all messianic testimonies to what will happen when nature itself is restored by the messianic prophet of the Lord. Now, finally, the nature miracles are eschatological signs. They're eschatological signs of a truly new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more curse, no chaos, no disorder, no lack of supply in the kingdom of heaven. Notice how Revelation 19, 7 to 9 is used as an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It attaches itself directly to the marvelous celebration at Cana. The entire created order will find its ultimate rest in the Lord of glory. All right, so the nature miracles participate in this threefold pattern. They display the apologetic aspect that Jesus is Lord God They display the messianic aspect that he is the bringer of provisional peace and abundance, and they testify to the kingdom of glory where there will be eternal peace and abundance and no hunger, no thirst, no want, no lack anymore, for the former things are completely passed away. All right, it's time for us to take our break. So uh, take your break, and we'll come back and take a look at the last three categories, filling out, again, this pattern of uh, how the miracles function, particularly the miracles of Jesus. And I remind you that you're invited back tomorrow night. I remember that. I know that's a 24-hour return, but uh, you're welcome tomorrow night to celebrate the Reformation with us here as we look at the East European Reformation. Well, let's see if you can uh, use the paradigm yourself, and uh, I'll ask the questions. Well, let's take a look at the healing miracles and think about, you know, what I've explained so far. And we have the three aspects of a miracle. So we're going to examine the healing miracles in terms of those three aspects. The first aspect would be what? Apologetic. The apologetic. All right. And in the apologetic, what are we showing, Ben? The truthfulness of that which is spoken. Okay. But uh, when we talk about the Lord himself in this relationship... <clears throat> He is the Lord of creation. So we identify him as God. Okay, now how does that fit in with the healing miracle? Well, 
recreation? Mm, I'm going to save that for down here, okay, but that's a good thought. He is performing an act of creation. That is, he's creating health out of illness. He's doing what God himself does in Psalm 103, who heals all your diseases. So, what God does, Jesus does, and identifies him as, identifies himself as the Lord of the created order, even the created order under the blight or curse of sickness. All right, so the healing miracles do underscore the deity of Christ because he exercises power over a cursed, created uh, order and brings health. All right, now what's the second uh, aspect here of the miracles? We're going to stick with Ben. Ben started us on the track of the categories here. All right, so what's the, the next category, the single category? Available now. It is, which shows what? It shows that the new order has come. Yes, a new order has come. That's true. But give me one word. It's not really too fancy a word. Messianic. This is the messianic aspect. Okay. And now, Robert. Okay. He's Lord. Lord of the creation. Of, of the, well, we have creation up here. We don't want to make it redundant, do we? He's the Lord of the new creation. Correct. Now, how do the healing miracles show or testify or attest to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the new creation? Remember, this is messianic. Overcoming curse. Overcoming the curse. Any messianic prophecies? The blind shall see. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The tongue of the dumb shall, the tongue of the dumb shall be loosed. Yes. He takes the messianic prophecies of what's going to happen in the messianic age. No, the prophets say that when the Messiah comes, the sick and the lame and the halt are going to be made well. And Jesus does it. In fact, he does it in order to provide a sign that he is the messianic Lord. He heals the lame and the sick and the halt and the blind in order to demonstrate that he is the messianic Savior. He is the messianic Lord of a new creation. Now, he doesn't heal all sickness. Not everybody in Palestine that was sick when Jesus was alive got healed. No. In other words, he doesn't alleviate the curse perfectly. He does it perfectly for the time in which he heals for the people he touches, but not for everybody. This is provisional. That is, it is temporary, pointing beyond itself. And in fact, the people that he did heal from sickness did die later on themselves. Something else came to take them away. But nonetheless, he gives a sign that he exercises this messianic power and, uh, and, and alleviates their sickness immediately. Now, what's the last category here? This is the eschatological. The eschatological aspect of the miracles 
which show that he is what? Lord of glory. This is the glory of heaven. Okay, so glory of heaven and eschatological are synonyms here. How do the healing miracles show that? How does Jesus show that he is the Lord of eschatological glory by making the sick well? Is there any sickness in the kingdom of heaven? Are there any lame or blind or halt there? No. There is perfect healing. There is perfect restoration in the eschatological kingdom. So Jesus gives a sign of what lies down the road in the perfectly consummated eschatological kingdom, in the kingdom of heavenly glory, in the eternal kingdom of heavenly glory, there is no more sickness or sorrow or death anymore. For the former things have passed away. Okay? See how more richly nuanced are the miracles, how how they begin to pulsate with a dramatic character which is greater than just this mere apologetic aspect. Yes, the apologetic aspect is there, but there is this richer messianic aspect which attaches it to the Old Testament prophets, and there is this richer eschatological aspect which attaches it to the book of Revelation. You see what we're doing? We're attaching the miracles. Here's the miracle here in the time of Christ. We're attaching it retrospectively and prospectively to the history of redemption. We're putting it in the drama of the unfolding history of salvation. We're not simply isolating it as a kind of, shall we say, philosophical or apologetic philosophical tool. We're enriching it. We're identifying it with a narrative of the unfolding history of Revelation, history of salvation. All right, now let's just change the label here. To exorcism. Mary Lou, what's an exorcism? You never will. Why won't you? Because I'm going someplace else. Because? Because I'm not going to be there. <laughs> but it's not even possible for you to have an exorcism. Why? The devil's cast out. Pardon? The devil's cast out. The devil has been cast out. And who has come in to dwell? Mary Lou? Christ has come in to dwell, and he's stronger. He's stronger than Satan. So, in other words, if you belong to Christ, the devil cannot take you over. It's impossible. He'd have to overcome the Son of God himself. He'd have to overcome the Holy Spirit that indwells you. So, no Christian, no genuine Christian can be demon-possessed. Can't happen. Or else... We got a problem, don't we? All right, so exorcism is casting out of Satan. Jesus definitely does cast Satan out. All right, so what is the apologetic function of Jesus casting out Satan? Anyone? 
in your right mind. No. He's come to cast out the stronger. Shows he's what? He's gone. He's Lord over the demons. Are the demons creatures? Yes. Does he control them? He not only controls them, he can see them. He knows they're there. Do you know they're there? Oh, that weird behavior that that person did that last Sunday, that, that there must be demon possessed. No, sorry. Having been in a number of mental institutions as a result of my pastoral role and having seen all kinds of bizarre human behavior, <clears throat> no, I don't think that uh, you can label that uh, demon possession just because you think it's strange. The illness of the human mind can produce all kinds of strange actions, but is not necessarily an indication of a demon. It is simply an indication of an illness, a tragic breakdown in the mental processes. David? Is there any demon possession during the church age? Yes. I I think demons are present in this age. They are possessing people in this culture. But my point is, Jesus can see them as well as cast them out. He has the gift of discernment as well as the gift of exorcism. He communicates that gift to his disciples. But we've already concluded that the age of miracles has ceased when we talked about chapter 1. So, therefore, that gift doesn't exist. Not only the gift to cast them out as Jesus did, but the gift to discern their presence. That's the reason I make the comment about is there any kind of behavior you would say which is an absolute litmus test of demonic possession? No, I don't think there is. But I'm not denying that they're there. I'm just simply saying I don't believe that the miraculous gift of knowing they're there and the miraculous gift of casting them out is present in the church today. Well then, if they're there, how do they get cast out if it's not miraculously? Mary Lou? (laughs) Well, it's (laughs) because of the protection, protection we have. So if Jesus comes in, then if that person was demon-possessed, the demon's going to go out, right? We, we won't necessarily know. It's not any, there's no visible nature or there's no visible act that suggests that the demon go out. You know, don't fall down on the floor and writhe all over the place, and therefore the demon went out. <clears throat> no, that's no, that's no necessary indication. But the point is <clears throat> that the demons are present in the culture, and they do enter into sinners in this age. And they do, uh, they are cast out, but they are not cast out miraculously. They are cast out by the conversion of the soul, by the repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes into that person's life, the devil immediately flees. But he doesn't flee like a little black speck that, you know, uh, you know, evaporates up out of your head or whatever. All right. What about the messianic aspect of exorcism? God? He destroys the powers of principalities and powers. Yes. He says, if I by the finger of God cast out Satan, then you know that the kingdom of heaven has come amongst you. The prophets are prophesying the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, which includes the subjugation of Satan. 
the expulsion of Satan, the exorcism of Satan, casting out of Satan. Jesus says, if I do this by the finger of God, then you know that the messianic kingdom of heaven has come into your midst. I am bringing a new creation. I am putting these people, as Pete said a little bit earlier, I'm putting people back into their right mind. But it is their right mind in a messianic arena. And the eschatological aspect of exorcism? No devils, no more. There are no devils in heaven. The only place the devils are is in hell. Now it is true the devils are going to be called up to the judgment throne in heaven. But they're going to be called up to the judgment throne in heaven in order to be judged and consigned to hell forever. As well as the spirits of the damned. Those who reject Christ are also going to be consigned to hell forever. Okay. So, once again, the miraculous gift of exorcism functions in this redemptive historical pattern. We look back to the promise of the relief from the curse and from the agents of the curse and from the imps that exacerbate the curse uh, into the Old Testament, particularly Messianic prophecies, and we look forward to the kingdom of heaven where no abomination or anything that worketh uncleanness comes into that perfect city of God. Any questions about that? Which leaves the final category, the greatest of Jesus' miracles, resurrection of Jairus' daughter, widow of Nain's son, and particularly Lazarus. Now, of course, the resurrection of Lazarus is the death of Arminianism. Why is the resurrection of Lazarus the death of Arminianism? Because when Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb and Lazarus is stone cold dead in there, he doesn't ask Lazarus if he wants to make a decision for Christ today and come out. He doesn't treat Lazarus as if he is capable in his state inside that tomb Four days stinking dead, as his sister says, he doesn't treat Lazarus as if he has some inherent freedom of the will or ability to walk out. He doesn't even treat Lazarus as if he has some ability to respond to his invitation. Jesus can stand there and say all day long, Lazarus, if you want to, if you want to come out, come on out, Lazarus, come on, I'm out here, come on, join me. If you came with a bus, they'll wait. If you came with friends, they'll wait. Jesus doesn't use that kind of evangelistic invitation at Lazarus's tomb. Now, okay, now this is a theological point. We're talking about how the resurrection of Lazarus is in fact a display of the resurrection of any sinner. Ephesians 2. Paul says it. You were dead in trespasses and sin. He didn't say you were sick. He said, you were dead. You were like Lazarus, four days stinking cold on the slab in that tomb. The, the, the stone rolled over it, and you were shut up in eternal darkness. And Jesus didn't come to that tomb and say, if you would like to, come on out of the darkness. Jesus came to that tomb, and he exerted 
divine, almighty, supernatural power. That was the only thing that was going to change you from death to life, from being a corpse to being a walking former dead, to being Lazarus alive from the grave. He has made you alive together with Christ Jesus and quickened you. He, God, not you, not your free will, not your decision. Not your ability. You don't have any. You're dead. Spiritually lifeless. You have to have life in order to walk out of that tomb. The only way you're going to get life is from the one who has life to give, and that's God Almighty. And so the resurrection of Lazarus puts the lid on Arminianism. Nobody that understands that miracle can ever be anything other than a Calvinist. Can you? Can you squeeze Arminianism out of Lazarus in his tomb? Tell me how Lazarus can in some way respond. He's dead. He's dead. There's no life in him. And yet if he lives, it's not because of anything in him, is it? If he lives... It's because Jesus makes him alive. God raises him from the dead. Supernatural act of regeneration, resurrection. Now, we're not saying that our Arminian friends are not saved. That's not what we're saying. Please do not misunderstand me. But we're asking our Arminian friends to think biblically to think about salvation in terms of Lazarus in his tomb. This is exactly what George Whitfield did during the Great Awakening when he preached his marvelous, powerful sermon on, on Lazarus in his grave and he reduced that whole story to Reformed soteriology, to the Reformed doctrine of salvation. And he did it in dramatic fashion. He knew John Wesley didn't agree with him. He knew his friend John Wesley didn't agree with him. He didn't think John Wesley was not a Christian, for he once asked if John Wesley would go to heaven, and he said to the person that asked him that question, Ah, sir, Wesley shall be, shall be so close to the throne of grace, we shall scarce catch sight of him. That's how charitable, that's how charitable George Whitfield was to John Wesley. Was John Wesley that charitable to George Whitfield? No. No. No, because he broke fellowship with Whitfield. Because Whitfield became a Calvinist. How tolerant we Calvinists are. How intolerant these Arminians are. Well, all right. I make a little peripheral point here, uh, but I make it to effect. Let's think about the dynamic power that is involved in raising a dead body. It is not human-created natural ability in any sense. It is supernatural, miraculous, regenerating power. That's what's raising spiritual corpses, and that's what's raising physical corpses. It is almighty power, not your puny free will. All right, so... The resurrection, how do we have an apologetic defense of Jesus as Lord of creation? 
And you all say in chorus, Because he is past the power of God, doesn't he? He shows that he's God by bringing them up. Exactly. Well, how about this messianic aspect? This one's a little more challenging. But you take the basic premise of the messianic character and you look back in the Old Testament prophets. And you take a look at Hosea chapter 6. And you look at Isaiah chapter 25. And in those passages there is this declaration that your dead shall live. On the third day they shall live even according to Hosea. So in the messianic age there is going to be life for the dead. That's going to be a sign of the coming of the kingdom of heaven and Jesus gives you a sign that he is the Lord of that new creation in which life comes for those that are dead under the curse. And finally, the eschatological aspect. He will raise up these moldy bodies and bring them full resurrected, fully resurrected to glory, like his own. Like his own. You will have a resurrection body like your Lord Jesus' resurrection body. That's the reason, in part, that he was raised from the dead. In order to pioneer the way for you. To go ahead of you. To show you the way of resurrection in his own resurrection body. He's been buried, raised ascended into glory. That's in front of you. It's behind him. You get the point. So, when he raises Lazarus and the two others in the New Testament that are described, narratives are described, he is showing us what lies ahead, both for himself and for those that belong to him in glory you will have a risen, transformed body of glory subject perfectly to the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Now, I trust that that enriches your understanding of the miracles. Our charismatic friends will come to me and say, yes, but you robbed us of the miracles for the church today. Uh, No, I didn't. I directed you to the miracles in terms of what they were revealed for the church of every day since Jesus ascended. Namely, that these miracles are a revelation to you of who your Lord is. The miracles belong to you in that sense. They tell you who your Lord is. They tell you what he has done in terms of the Old Testament prophecy, and they tell you what he is going to do. The miracles do belong to you. No, not the phenomenon itself, but what the miracles signified, what they attested, what they revealed. That belongs to you, and it belongs to you more richly than it belongs to the person who is always looking for his next miracle. And what happens when it doesn't come? Have you ever dealt with people like that? 
who seek and seek and seek the miracle and it doesn't come. And have you then had to deal with the discouragement, the depression, the sense of betrayal, hopelessness? Ah, God doesn't love me. I'm not good enough. If I were good enough, if I prayed enough, if I had enough of faith, then God would do a miracle. Have you ever had to deal with that? And the agony that it causes, the spiritual turmoil that it produces, and sometimes the apostasy that it brings. Sometimes the apostasy that it brings. No. It is not the external event that is primary. It is the Lord who is primary. It is Jesus who is central. These miracles in the Gospels and in the New Testament are an invitation to you to meditate, believe on, trust, hold fast to the Lord Jesus. That's why they're there. Not that you can duplicate them and wave your magic charismatic finger. And you get more spaghetti in your colander or whatever. (laughs) You chuckle at that. But in my dabbling in the charismatic movement, that was one of the common signs. You see, that when you had friends over and you didn't have enough spaghetti to feed everybody, that just pray to the Holy Spirit and the spaghetti would multiply in the colander. And you'd have plenty to go around. I just scratched my head at that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, they were dead serious about it. Even as they were dead serious about leg lengthenings, arm lengthenings, and everything else. Okay, any questions or comments? I do want you to realize that the charismatic testimony belongs to Reformed believers, even those who believe, as I do, in the cessation of the charismata. They belong to us because they are revealed here. And this book belongs to me, and the Christ of this book belongs to me, and therefore his miracles belong to me. Not in the phenomenal sense, the phenomenological sense that they are continued, but in the sense of what they reveal about who he is, what he does, and what he will bring in the future to his children. That you cannot take away. Andy? Um, Do you consider salvation... Man, the breaking of the you know, curse in a heart, is that supernatural and miraculous? It is supernatural, but not miraculous. All right, now let me, let me elaborate on that just for a minute. Thanks for the question, Andy. Um, what's the quality of these miraculous... Supernatural events. They are visible. Jesus changes the water into wine. You see the wine, that uh, the water that has become wine, the wine that has come out of the water. Jesus walks across the water. You see Jesus coming across the water. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He walks out of the tomb. <clears throat> These miraculous events, as Nicodemus testified, he's seen them. I know you're a teacher from God because I've seen what you do. The visibility of the miracles 
is uh, a, a, an identification of their quality. All right. Regeneration. Or the salvation of the soul by the Holy Spirit. Is it a supernatural event? It is a supernatural event. Is it visible? Yes. Yes. But not the event itself. You cannot see the moment when the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart. You can tell it from its fruits, but Jesus says in that discussion with Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. And you don't know where it comes from or where it was going. In other words, you can't see it. You only know it's there by stirring up the leaves, blowing the rain, bending the tree. You know it's there, but you can't see it. You cannot see the moment of regeneration. The Holy Spirit works invisibly, but he works supernaturally. That is not miraculous. Once again, we be very precise about using this term the way the Bible uses it. Regeneration is never called miraculous. It is supernatural. It is an act of God. It is an act of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but it is not a visible act. Any? But if, um, if we're saying that the breaking of the natural visible order in the breaking of the curse, and so Christ reverses death, he reverses sickness, he isn't the reversing of the curse inside of our souls in the same realm as that? And that, that aren't those equal in a sense? It is in the created realm. I don't deny that. But it is the way in which he works in that created realm. He works through the direct intervention of his Holy Spirit to transform the heart but not in a way that you can see it, except by delayed reaction, so to speak, by the, the, the effect of it showing itself. Well, I could argue that you couldn't see Lazarus come to death, come to life, like you see him walk around after. Yes. I could argue you never saw the loaves and baskets, you know, and the fish burning the bread expanding. You just saw the fact that the baskets afterwards. So I mean, I can make that same argument. True. But that the, the appearance of Lazarus was an appearance of a physical manifestation, a visible manifestation. You don't see a immediate visible manifestation of the transformation of the soul. You can't see the spirit work on it. Okay. Now, true, you don't see, so to speak, the uh, Christ working on Lazarus, but you immediately see him responding to it. You immediately see the man rising up from his bed and walking as Jesus commands him to do so. <clears throat> you see, the, the evidence of regeneration can be delayed. It can be delayed for some time. It can actually be there and latent there and doesn't manifest itself, you know, in the way that we tend to, uh, to conclude that there's been an evangelical transformation. But it can be there authentically. Definition of miraculous includes or must include visibility. Yes, visibility. That, that's, that's the criteria. Okay? No, understand, we're not denying the supernatural character of both. But one is invisible to my phenomenological eye. Spirit works when and where he pleases. I can't see him when he's working where he pleases. I can see Jesus go to a tomb. I can see Jesus walk on the water. I can see Jesus uh, 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 command that the uh, water become wine. But I can't see the spirit change the heart. Did you call prophecy miraculous? 
No, supernatural, but not miraculous. Supernatural communication, but not miraculous. Remember, the prophet's own personality and his background is being used for the uh, harnessing of information which is, uh, which is combined with revelation that's received from without him. But it's also using information that is within him. Good questions. Scott? To support what you're saying, the difference there also is between regeneration and miracle. seeing a miracle is a degree of probability. And we have a degree of probability this is a believer because of the fruits, but we don't have the kind of certainty that maybe a person has that this body rose from the dead. Good. We can see the dead body rise immediately. <laughs> so, you know, it's not a question of probability, it's a question of certainty there. Thanks. Yes. Does the Holy Spirit ever, is he ever visible? Does he ever make himself visible? No, not, not to my knowledge. Now, he shows himself in terms of tongues of fire, but remember, that's symbol. That's not his essence, that's not his essential person, per se. Unless if somebody can remember an incident in which he does manifest himself visibly. But I can know his presence. You can know his presence spiritually. Okay? Yes, that is a very real communion that you have with the spirit that indwells you. But that is a spiritual communion. It's not a visible or, you know, tangible communion. It's an emotional, okay? It's a, it's an, a, a communion of your feelings, okay? But it's a feeling of a spiritual relationship. To add to it, also, it's at high times of redemption and revelation. It doesn't happen all the time simultaneously within the scriptures, but at high times of redemption and revelation, like Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Christ, and the apostles. Yes, Pete's making the point about these eras of miraculous power, right? They're not routine. The charismatic movement makes the error of thinking that miracles are routine. They are not. There are periods in which there are no miracles in the history of redemption. Christ risen from the dead, is that considered a miracle? Yes, that's a miracle. That's the great miracle. <laughs> All right, now, uh, you have uh, the uh, eighth handout, Hebrews handout number eight. I'm going to uh, fill in some of the blanks for you. I should note that uh, we are making haste slowly, festinilente, as they said in Latin, uh, which means that obviously we're eight weeks into Hebrews, and in 13 weeks we're not going to finish Hebrews 13, in case you haven't divined that already. <laughs> so... So uh, we'll go as far as we can, and then in January we turn this podium over to Professor Sanborn, who will, uh, he assures me, get through the Epistle of the Galatians in 13 weeks. And so, Lord willing, we will return to Hebrews next fall. So we will give you a break. You can come up for air, so to speak. Uh, Scott will, will let you cruise a little more easily. Well, maybe not, but uh, at any rate... Uh, Scott will then take the spotlight, and then I will uh, resume with Hebrews next September, Lord willing. All right, now, um, the hook words or the crocheted words, les mots crochet, 
uh, verse 9 and 10, you should see the word suffering that is duplicated in those two verses. In 11 and 12, the word brethren. In 13 and 14, children. In 14 and 15, death. Now in 16, you'll notice that in 16 and 18, we have words that are duplicated in the same verse. In the first line, 16a, and the second line, 16b, you have the word help. And then in 18a, you have tempted, which also reappears in 18b. Now, excuse me, I'm not going to uh, take a lot of time to develop the significance of this concatenation, uh, in part because I, I really don't have time to get down into it. It becomes a little bit more technical than anything we have done so far, so I'm going to leave it at this, of having listed uh, the qualities of the, of the or the terms themselves and point out the fact that this is a literary construction. He's doing this for particular literary and theological purposes. However, I want to point out what I think is the narrative progression of the Epistle of Hebrews to this point, and a little bit beyond chapter 2. I began this study by suggesting that The epistle of the Hebrews is a narrative. It has its own drama. Now, I think that this has been uh, elaborated in principle as we've been moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And here is my suggestion. We have moved from an ontological arena. Namely, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we have had the description of Jesus as the imprint of the very nature of the Godhead. That's an ontological. He is God himself. All right, so here is the drama of the Son of God in eternal glory from before the creation of anything in the world. Now notice the sequence. The next arena in which he is described as moving, he's moving about in this arena, is the angelic arena where the angels come to worship him. All right, out of his eternal being, the angels are brought to adore him, to fall before him and worship him. All right, now that is the, sub, the next subsequent uh, um, narrative movement in the history of redemption. Now here in chapter 2, with the citation of Psalm 8, we come to an Adamic motif. What is man that thou art mindful of him? All right, now I'll fill that out in a, in a minute or if we don't have time tonight, next week. But we have shifted from the ontological then to the next step into the arena in which Christ moves the angelic, now into the arena of creation, into the Adamic arena. At the beginning of the creation of man. And in this chapter, verse 16, chapter 2, the writer mentions the seed of Abraham. So he moves from Adamic to Abrahamic, through the patriarchal era. Now, he just mentions it. He will eventually develop this later on, but he's put, he puts out this, uh, this uh, part of the advancement of the drama. Christ moving from his ontological glory, his preexistent 
deity and godhead to the angelic realm, to the Adamic arena, to the patriarchal or Abrahamic arena, and in chapter 3, verse 2, to the Mosaic arena. You see how the story is unfolding. The story is unfolding in the epistle the way the story unfolds in the Bible, in the order of the narratives. He's following the pattern of the narrative of the story of Scripture. After Moses comes Israel in the wilderness, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. So he moves from Mosaic to a pilgrim motif in the wilderness of Sinai. And then in chapter 4, he mentions Joshua. And now we are in the era of the conquest. Notice, we move from Abraham to Moses to the wilderness sojourn to Joshua bringing them over the Jordan to the conquest of the promised land. And now, in chapter 4, verse 14... And following for several chapters, he's going to concentrate on the cultic narrative. That is, the narrative of the high priest's role and the tabernacle in the story of Israel's life. All right, my point here is to suggest that there is a broad narrative pattern being unfolded in this epistle. And it is the broad pattern of the unfolding of the Old Testament, the story of the people of God, from Adam to Abraham to Moses to Joshua to the children, to the children of Israel in the wilderness to Joshua and to the tabernacle as the center of the worship life of the people of God in the former covenant. Now, we'll expand upon this and we'll, accept, we'll in fact see him go back to this paradigm in chapter 11. You're going to go over it again with some different figures, but with the same pattern. Keeping that in mind, then, this is not just an epistle where you extract truths or doctrines. This is an epistle which is drawing you into the narrative flow of the history of salvation. You're being drawn back to Abraham, to Moses, to Israel in the wilderness, to Joshua in the conquest, to David and the prophets. This is drama. This isn't just bare fact. This is enlivening your own faith, your own sense of identification with the text. You're being drawn into the story. All right, now, in chapter 2, I believe, this is the reason I have a question mark, beside the word frame, I believe there are two literary frames in this chapter, or at least in the last part of the chapter. Let's see if you can find them. In verse 5 and in verse 8, there is a term which frames that section. Stephen, your head is up. Subject, the word subject, okay? Notice in verse 5 and in verse 8, that word appears and it brackets or it frames that unit of this chapter. Then in chapter, in verse 9 rather, we have another word that reappears in verse 18.
Sarah, right? do you see it? Your head went up. It is suffer. Very good. Yes. Notice in verse 9. It is, in fact, a noun in verse 9, but it is the same Greek word in verse uh, 18 as a verb. Now, I put a question mark beside the framing device. Is he intentionally bracketing these verses with this kind of literary marker? I'm not sure about that. Okay? So I'm a little bit agnostic. Nonetheless, I observe it, and so I want to think about it a little more. But I point it out to you so that you actually have a way of dividing the chapter up. Verses 1 to 4 are a unit. Verses 5 to 8 are, I'm suggesting, a unit. And verses 9 to 18 are a unit. There are three units. There are three pericopes in this chapter. A pericope is the Greek word for a unit of text. All right. That brings us to verse 5 and the challenge of the translation of the verse, particularly the word world that appears there. I'm not going to start into that tonight because we're almost at our uh, stopping point. So what I will do is take any miscellaneous questions or comments you have and we'll resume next week there uh, on the outline with verse 5. Um, is your basis for the definition of miracle uh, not that there is a definition in one verse of the Bible, but that as the verse as the miracles are described in the use of the word miracle, that it must be the way you say? Yeah, I, I think what I'm doing is I'm taking the data from Scripture and creating a definition which fits the data. Uh, now, I have to admit that my definition is based in part upon the definition C.S. Lewis gives in his very important book on miracles. And that is a very important text on uh, arguing against the rejection of miracles uh, in the scriptures and in the supernatural realm. I would supplement uh, my own definition I gave you tonight and uh, uh, Lewis's definition with what Nicodemus observes. Namely, that you're a messenger from God. So a miracle is a supernatural act caused by the direct action of God, apart from the forces of nature, no secondary causes, for the purpose of endorsing a messenger of revelation. I would add that to the definition. Pete? When the Christian Reformed Church made its compendium, that was a question that was put into that compendium and answered it as you have answered. I'm in good company. Well, it is what Pete's observed is that this is a reformed definition of miracle. When you start looking at Calvin's Institutes, when you look at the reformed systematic theologies, Burkhoff, etc., Charles Hodge, this is a uh, John Murray, this is a traditional definition from the reformed standpoint of what a miracle is. It's also a traditional definition even in, in uh, some Methodist circles and Baptist circles of what a miracle is. But definitely is true of uh, reformed. Uh, Christianity. Yes, Stephen. I always took the took Nicodemus as applying what's in, I think it's in Deuteronomy uh, where Moses talks about uh, when when God sends him prophets, this is this is the 
This is how you're to, to know and recognize that they're a prophet. If they give a sign and the sign comes true, or they give a prophecy and the prophecy comes true, you're to listen to them if it doesn't come true. And the Pharisees come to Jesus elsewhere uh, in the synoptics, I think, and they, they say, give us a sign so that we, you know, from God so we know that you're a prophet. So it seemed to me that there, there's a, there's a, that's there in the Old Testament as well, at least the, fun, the way miracles are supposed to function. Yes, and I don't think it's out of consideration when Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus as a, as a part of the larger background. <clears throat> but remember, in chapter 3, he is coming out of having observed what Jesus has done in chapter 2, which has been, he's been performing many miracles in Jerusalem. So I'm dealing with the immediate phenomenological, though I don't want to deny that there may be this rabbinical uh, tradition or actually biblical tradition going back to Deuteronomy 18. So in other words, I didn't exhaust it with just pointing out there's there's more that's there. Scott? You're, you're mentioning all these motifs in the narrative progression. Um, would you call these main motifs? The reason I ask that question is because we've even seen before the, Adam, the Adamic motif, the motif of the law. And maybe even if we would go back to chapter 1 where we've seen that Christ is exalted over angels, perhaps over the period of the law, that, uh, that that's, we've been there. Um, now maybe that's not satisfactory enough to say main motifs. Maybe you want to say the history of by this, the writer is showing by the history of redemption that we've gone beyond the period of the law. And if we really understand redemptive history, you know, that's where we're going. But uh, yeah, how would you approach that? Um, I haven't even thought of what you observed. Um, uh, so I'd have to reconsider uh, it in the light of what I have said. I'm not dogmatic about this paradigm. <clears throat> I'm simply observing that there seems to be a sequence that follows the sequence of the way the scriptures unfold. And I'm not putting the law in it per se, even though it's been mentioned as an aside, uh, even here in chapter 2. Uh, I'm not putting the law in there per se because it's something you're going to go back to later on in this epistle. You're kind of going to zero in on, he's, even as he's going to zero in on this cultic and priestly and tabernacle motif. He's going to really uh, expand it in greater detail. Uh, so uh, I just want you to, to have a sense that there is a story narrative behind the way the epistle is uh, out, is unfolding, is developing. And you know, keeping that in mind, then this matter of the New Testament pilgrim people of God fits into that paradigm. It identifies us with the pilgrim, the Abraham the pilgrim, or Adam the pilgrim, Abraham the pilgrim, Moses the pilgrim, Israel the pilgrims, Joshua the pilgrim, etc., that's basically what I'm what I'm observing. Well, thank you, and uh, Lord willing, perhaps see you tomorrow night. You're certainly welcome.